Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today we contemplate wisdom and jazz. The jazz of wisdom, the wisdom of jazz, the jazz state of mind that carries so much spiritual potential. All of us can cultivate a jazz style of mind, that responsiveness and spontaneity and creativity and awareness. And listening to jazz in a deep way can help us do that. That's an excerpt from Night Vision, the title track to the latest album from the Carol Nelson Trio. And today we have as our very special guest, Carol Nelson herself. Carol is a Londoner who has lived in Ireland for nearly 40 years. She is a multi-award winning composer a jazz and improvising musician, pianist, saxophonist, and songwriter. Her most recent work is with the Carol Nelson Trio, with whom she has recorded three acclaimed albums. Her music reflects the natural world, the woodlands, river, and woodlife in her home in Southern Ireland. She endeavors to integrate an authentic eco-literacy into her creative practice and into her engagement with the world. She is a long-time meditation practitioner in the tradition of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh's socially engaged Buddhism, and she facilitates days of mindfulness. Carol Nelson, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. It's wonderful to have you here. Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, so happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today, a delightful guest. This is a real special treat for me, everyone. I am so pleased to have Carol Nelson with us. Carol is a Londoner who has lived in Ireland for nearly 40 years. She is a multi-award-winning composer, a jazz and improvising musician, pianist, saxophonist, and songwriter. Her most recent work is with the Carol Nelson Trio, with whom she has recorded three acclaimed albums. Her music reflects the natural world, the woodlands, 
river, and wildlife in her home in Southern Ireland. She endeavors to integrate an authentic eco-literacy into her creative practice and into her engagement with the world. She is a long-time meditation practitioner in the tradition of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh and his socially engaged Buddhism, and she facilitates Days of Mindfulness. Carol, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you, Nikos. My pleasure to be here. That's really my pleasure. I, uh, I, I like this. Uh, you're a jazz musician facilitating Days of Mindfulness. Mm-hmm. What's that look like? Um, well, actually, the days of mindfulness were curtailed due to the pandemic. Uh-huh. But before the pandemic, we, uh, we, when I say we, we as a sangha of, of practitioners were meeting once a month for a whole day up in a beautiful mountain village called Rohana. Uh, people coming from all over the southeast of Ireland. Uh, and we we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were just going through the practices um, as taught by, to us by Thich Nhat Hanh and his community. That's wonderful. Now, of course, part of why we're here is to discuss your latest album. Uh-huh. And uh, maybe we will get to this, uh, this interwovenness of the jazz mind and the meditative mind a little bit more deeply. But uh, so the new album, it's got an interesting title. Night Vision. Mm. Yeah, I think I had the title before I had the music. Uh-huh. Um, which isn't always the case. Uh, other albums I've made, it's been more like the music's all done, and then I think, oh, that song, that could be an album title, and we'll pick it that way, you know. But this one, I had the title. I really wanted to see what might uh, come under that particular dark sky, see what, see what would uh, transpire if I took that as a title, because to me it, um, it conjured up a lot of different ideas. So uh, night vision firstly was to do with being able to um, see stars at night in what I, what we call over here, I'm sure you do in the States as well, you call the dark sky areas where there's no, or very little artificial light and you really can see the cosmos as much as is possible with a, with, with the naked eye. Uh, so that was my starting point, that experience of being in a dark sky area. And uh, then there was also the idea of um, those different, the creatures that can see in the dark and all those skills that other beings have that we don't have. That's, that was what I was thinking about. Um, what else did it mean? It also meant um, something to do with dreaming uh, and, and the things we see in our dreams. And uh, I, I wanted to go a little deeper into myself, into how to even begin to imagine, um, what will I call it, uh, a post-Anthropocene world, a, a functioning sane world, um, any of those descriptions, I suppose, you know. Mm-hmm. 
that yeah. that was where I was at. So then the, the music came afterwards. Yeah. It's interesting um, on a number of levels. It's interesting because night vision, of course, one thing that comes to mind for, for a philosopher would be that the owl is one of Sophia's spirit being, Sophia's wisdom, and then in her appearance as Athena, because I sometimes think of Sophia as a, the uber archetype, and then there are many manifestations of her. And uh, so Athena, of course, has the owl, who is spooky to us in part because they really can navigate and they can hunt in the yes. dark. Yeah. yeah, and they're really remarkable beings. But that wisdom somehow means being able to see in places where others can't, that this is part of the... the, the many wisdom traditions have this idea that we have to... And what's interesting about it, of course, there's a number of ways in which... But, but I, I, there is an old Sufi... A tale about uh, the king gathering all the wise, wisest, supposedly wisest people. I would say these were, he gathered the scholars, you know, the scholars all came together and there was a big debate about whether the stars were real. And because the scholars were concluding and they were telling the king, this is, a, this is what we recommend. We recommend that the, your, your highness would uh, declare that the stars are not real because if you can't see them during the daytime, they must not be actually. <laughs> so there, then, the king said, "Well, so be it." And everyone was was started to really feel grief about this. Actually, there was, you know, they accepted the king has the authority to make this declaration. But then he saw that everyone, everyone's hearts sank, and the the fool spoke up and said, "When the sun shines, you can't see the stars." And the king said, if anyone could interpret that, that message from the fool in a way where we could re restore the stars, I will give them a huge reward. So then how did they proceed from there? But isn't that such an interesting thing? Absolutely. Yes, yes. We can't see them. We They're can't. not there. They're not there. <laughs> Yes, and you're pointing out it's really interesting how what ignorance does is it starts to cover them over because isn't the light pollution such an interesting statement about humanity where we're turning on these other lights and covering over. And it's really also this interesting thing where what are you going to trade? Because in this story, although you know I always tend toward wholeness, um, what they're trying to contrast is this idea that when the light of the ego is on, we're willing to sacrifice anything beyond what it can know with its bright lights and built, you know, shiny <laughs> surfaces and, you know, sharp corners and all this. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I, think that's a, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought it through that way, but that's really good. I, I like what you're saying. I'm, I'm very fortunate where I live that I do actually see stars, but I'm quite shocked sometimes, uh, even though I have lived in cities. But I don't live there now. When I'm when I'm in the city, it's just my God. It's never dark, never. Right, right. It's extraordinary. Yeah, because there's yeah. something. Because there's two. I mean, there's like I said. There's. I like a holistic view. For Plato, he gives us this image of the sun, um, which is one that transcends the dualities. So the sun for Plato would transcend, and this is a shocking thing actually for a Greek person to say that there is something beyond the duality of being and non-being, because his his colleague and kind of quasi-student Aristotle rejects that completely, which is the mystic view, 
is that there's something that transcends all these dualities. So he's using the sun in this holistic, it is everything, it is the night, it is the day, it is, you know, mm -hmm. um, so it's metaphorical. But in this other story of the Sufis, they're trying to say that there's another way of knowing the world that we cover over with that light, that ego's bright, harsh. <sighs> and what I was thinking I wanted to ask you about in relationship to this is in what way you feel that this is part of the process of jazz, of manifesting jazz. Do you have to turn that, that other light off to a certain degree? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think increasingly it's just becoming um, one and the same thing. Oh, yes. Okay, so that's the, that's the you're being very non-dualistic. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> which I, I'm not surprised at. But I, what I mean, though, is in in the sense of the habitual, that habitual mind that the Sufi story is getting at, uh, is, it, is it the case that we have to have night vision in order to enter the space of jazz, that we're drawing from that and allowing the other thing? Yes. Yes. Let me gather my thoughts about this. Just say that sentence again, which we need to Well, the simplest part of it is... It, it is Entering the space of jazz, when jazz happens, is it happening because we let the night vision open up? Absolutely, yes. Yes, it really is. And I, I had such a, um, uh, an extraordinary experience of that in, in the recording of the album where I had to let go of pre-planned creations uh, that just didn't feel right and, and let go into... Um, what became an hour of free improvisation and from that half the album it's half and half composed half completely improvised and that was just um i, I would describe it as a fairly transcendent experience that, that we didn't stop playing for an hour and we were completely in tune with each other of that you, you can't analyze it you can't stop and say to yourself what what are we doing and you're just feeling it and right right with it and with the other minds the three of us together in that moment well it wasn't a moment it was it didn't feel like a moment it felt like a long time um so it it felt it was uh, transcending my concepts of what what we were there to do Hmm. Yeah, that's and really powerful. Exploring, exploring uh, um, what were we exploring? It, it, it felt very unafraid. It felt really unafraid of... Um, uh, so one, one reviewer described the opening track as disturbing, which I kind of I enjoyed, actually, if it was disturbing. Uh, that was fine with me. And I, I think it is slightly disturbing, slightly other otherworldly, but... Um, uh, yeah, it wasn't trying to be pretty. Yeah, well, that first track, there are a couple of things going on there. I thought maybe, okay, maybe we can have a little sample of that track in a second. I One thing, just wanted to uh, acknowledge that sense of fearlessness that we have to have because our, there is a part of us that's afraid of the dark and a part of us that is afraid to let go of that habitual mind and its harsh light that we think illuminates the world, we think, but th but then we're we're trading one star for billions and billions that we're not getting to see, 
because we're afraid to be still and, and confront the fear we have of letting go of that habitual sun and, and relaxing into the night vision. And so that fearlessness, I think, must, must be really important. And mm-hmm. that you're saying that you have to let go of the habitual analytical process you can't step out of it. You're, you have to be in it and be okay in the dark for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, it lived its title in a very unexpected way. Yeah. Well, that's good. Creation. Yeah, because it, that's really nice that the soul was sort of calling, you know, with this, like this invitation to enter into something very special and magical. You know, you just had this kind of basic calling. Maybe we could listen to the thing that I thought was uh, very fitting about the um, the sound in the first track. We'll just play a few uh, fair use moments of this, <laughs> what we call fair <laughs> use in this world. We have to panic about everything. Um, so, but anyway, I thought it was interesting that it's it's called Chrysalis. So you start out with with a track that should be messy shouldn't it i mean my goodness this poor being had to dissolve into a soup right there's a section in it where the the bass on a bow is pulling this way and pulling that way and it to me it sounded like a being just finding the edges of its limitation and pushing it against it that was where the title ah, came from. i i felt very appropriate to me i'll play a few seconds here just so we can get a feel Okay, so there we are. That's that little little being in the soup of its existence, which I think, you know, should be a little bit just it's a it's a, a frightening process and we often use that as a metaphor for transformation anyway, right? Yes. Chrysalis. Well there's a there's at least a one new age wellness center near me called Chrysalis. So I was I didn't really want that association. To me, it was a much more primitive. Uh, is that the right word? No, it's not the right word. Um, archetypal. Yes, yes, archetypal, and uh, the um, struggle, real struggle, intense struggle against, yeah, for birth, for arrival. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you get that, um, I think, that theme, in a way, coming back in the track called Enter Your Life. Because uh, there, I don't know if this is what you intended, but I sort of hear life calling. Like you're kind of going along and you're caught up in your thing and then life starts calling. That's you on the horn. Maybe we can play a second of that, a few seconds of that. Hang on one second. Mm-hmm. 
So I sort of had the feeling, and I don't know if this is what you uh, intended, but I just had this feeling of a person kind of going through their life and there's this call and they don't, they're not really hearing it. And then <laughs> I, I swear that at the end of the song, I feel like the call is kind of fading and that, that we don't know if the person did finally hear it or if <laughs> impermanence caught up to them. <laughs> it's definitely a call. That saxophone is just... And to me, it's like I'm, I'm entering this note and holding it and the music is kind of going past me like doors, like I'm going through doors as I'm holding the notes. Does that make sense? As a yeah. last experience that I have, it's like they're coming past me, these notes and beats and drums and things, and I'm just going right down center through the doors. Yeah, going through the doors. I like that. Yeah. It reminds me of that, that um, Bodhisattva vow, the Dharma gates are endless. I vow to enter every one, entering yeah. all the Dharma gates of, of the sound. And this yeah. question that the horn is asking, are we going to enter the, the gates, the gateway to reality in our life? Because so many of us, we don't get to hear, we don't really hear the call. I mean, I think people on one level hear it and on another level don't. Or they conveniently, like I say, they mishear it. You know, the soul says, take the, take the sacred leap. And people go skydiving, is what I always say. You know, <laughs> take, take the inward journey, says the soul, and then people buy a plane ticket to Bali or something. But Because I am so, so happy that you hear it this way, really. Because I, I, don't, I don't know how many people do. Uh, well, I don't know how many people listen in the first place to my album, but, but, but you know, you hear that intention or that, that experience. So I'm really grateful. That's good. I'm, I'm grateful too. I'm grateful for the work that you've done. That's really marvelous. I wanted to touch on something else about night vision and this, this, this play between the two, because um, I think I would agree with you. What we want is uh, unity in our minds so that we don't feel that there has to be some tension between the intuitive and what we conventionally like to refer to as the rational. But in practice, somehow, it seems like... So I, I, I think maybe one definition of an enlightened being would be someone who really fully is, has made their thinking totally holistic in this way. And so we know that Buddha must have been able to touch incredible, as an example, as because he's one of my favorite mystical philosophers, but Socrates too. Both of them, we know they were able to touch this uh, profound mystical space, but they were very, very rational. I mean, my goodness, Buddha gives you this incredibly helpful analysis of the structure of mind. It's not the only one he could have given, but, you know, it really, really explains the mind well. Socrates was very, very rational in so many ways, and yet operating in this bizarre sense where, you know, some divine voice is, is guiding him in his life, where he says that, his daimon. But I was thinking about the, how Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer, in her book on, on the, the, this subject, it's called Extraordinary Knowing, and I've done a podcast episode about it. Uh, people might want to listen to that. Maybe I can put that up with, with this one because it's from last season. We can re-release it. But it's really worth listening to. And I mentioned her in, in one of the early uh, episodes in this season. But she, she talks about how there's like that maybe one way to understand this is like a gestalt. And she's so if you think of the vase face, the classic vase face, the center of the thing, you know, the object that we see is a vase. And we know that the mind can't see the other possibility, which is the relational one of two faces looking at each other and talking. We have to make a switch. You can't see them both. Once you notice that the faces are there, because they seem like they were in the background, but then they come into the foreground and the vase disappears for a moment. 
And then we can see that relational, oh, there's something else, and it sort of snuck out. But we can't actually see them both at the same time in our ordinary way. And I'm saying, like, maybe an enlightened person can. But it's interesting how different that shift is for some people, right? And that somehow or other, if you haven't, if you if you really want to cling to the thing, the vase, you're 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 not going to see the two faces <laughs> because you you have you would have to let go of it, and you don't get to have it for that moment. And that that transition is something that maybe musicians get used to doing that letting go that you did in the studio, right? Um, I don't know. Does that speak to you at all? I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, well, what it reminded me of immediately was was, was something very recent, which was um, the, the blue dress, white dress uh, Ferrari that happened all around the world of people who were on the internet anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, as a musician, let me just think that through. Uh, hmm. This is... I, I, I think I experience it more as as the, the dedicated practice and the building up of a very disciplined practice. And it's only when you have that that you can you can just leave it behind. But you have to have it first. You have to Yeah. Years and years and years and years. And and perhaps it's perhaps meditation practice it, it follows a similar um trajectory i don't know but i'm i just speak about the the jazz practice that it's that freedom to um just go and let your arms dance and see just but but certain certain shapes certain aspects of harmony that are just deeply internalized from bark through to i don't know miles davis anybody um it, it's kind of in the hands and off they go, but it, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't have done this this particular album ten ten years ago, and it's still like a a daily practice. It can sometimes be very ordinary. Um. So, uh, yeah, it's from the discipline. It's from that structure, a big mountain of discipline, really. Yeah. It's interesting how that's, you know, that's a facet of love in the wisdom traditions. You know, there are six facets of loves and love, and one of them is, uh, I usually refer to it as joyful perseverance, but it's often typically translated as diligence or discipline. And it's interesting how that correlates to the, the big five, the, the five personality factors. If you, if you want to explain success, for the most part, um, basic intelligence and conscientiousness, which is the same thing. That's the personality factor. Conscientiousness is a strong, strong predictor for whether or not we're going I to get there. That's, that's a. I, I was um, talking to someone recently who's in in you know child education and child psychology, and the uh, the idea that you know the more you tell a child how amazing they are, the less hard they work, and they're overtaken in their uh, efforts by the child who is praised for trying their best that's right yeah that's and, carol uh, dweck's work and they 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 will end up doing better just yes. by keeping going yeah it's, I, I don't know who the psychologist is but. well the psychologist is carol dweck but it's it's interesting how that's a, a again an insight that the wisdom traditions long understood especially you could i would say the buddhist traditions because they certainly have a view of the self as as you could say that they're the foundation of the buddhist way of knowing is that you're going to you're going to get what you practice and socrates also agreed it's it's not that i can tell you the truth you have to become 
the kind of person who can see the truth for themselves, and that takes disciplined practice. That's what yes. most of the wisdom traditions say. It's really interesting because the, it's like you had to make a place for the jazz to to germinate. You have to. You can't just go for the jazz. You have to work the soil. And then the jazz has a place where it can take root, and suddenly the fruit appears, and you go, whoa, I couldn't have just produced that fruit. <laughs> I had to. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something else about jazz. Oh, I, I think another similarity is definitely, the, the, well, the word tradition. Um, in fact, I was listening to a, a podcast just recently by an Irish um jazz t musician and educator Ronan Guilfoyle about um, the balance between tradition and innovation and in, that to me tradition is really important. In fact when I started to I'm self-taught as a jazz musician and my my thought, this was a long time ago, was oh I better start at the beginning, I'll start with Scott Joplin I'll move into Fats Waller and then I'll kind of head into Count Basie and then I, Duke Ellington and just moving through which was really instructive and helpful but I I kind of got stuck just before more contemporary. Uh, I, I needed more help with that. Well, that's um, okay. It, yeah. it's, of course, Elliot T.S. Eliot wrote about this in his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. And the, the spiritual traditions all have to navigate that space between pattern transcendence and pattern maintenance. If you don't, you know, like you can see this, like even the Zen tradition, which is so iconoclastic, so irreverent, and they're even, you know, there's like anti-words and all this. And at the same time, they have this massive literature, this really rigid lineage. They're very, very attached to that, you could say. I don't know. I mean, ideally, they're non-attached to it, but they're very committed to it. And um, yeah, you know, that, that, that razor's edge between, you know, tradition and innovation that you're talking about is really important, isn't it? It is important. I think. I think with tradition, um, there lies a, a respect and a humility, and an, an understanding that one is on a path, and that one has forebears, one has ancestors and teachers. Um, I, I suspect, and I might be wrong, but I, I think there is a an emphasis in art education uh, and, and music education on innovation. Uh, that, that is something of a pressure. On, on younger musicians and younger artists that they have to be dazzlingly original. Um, and I'm not sure it's always helpful or healthy. Yeah, well, it's also interesting to even ask the question what that means, because from the, again, from the same standpoint of the wisdom traditions, um, there's not a possibility to arrive at real originality within the constraints of our habitual mind. You have to arrive at the original mind in order to arrive at original thought for these traditions. Everything mm -hmm. else, we, we just don't even realize that we're still parroting. I used to see this in my students all the time in philosophy courses where, and, I, and of course I've worked with a lot of artists um, at different stages, in, including young artists. And what you see in the uh, younger people is that they think they're saying their own idea and they don't realize that they're, it's not theirs. And that's just even part of why you study the tradition is to, you have to figure out what, what's been said. You know, Stockhausen is, is tradition at this stage and atonal music is tradition. It's over a century old, you know, so, mm. well, not a century old. So um, to, to create a piece of music that wants to go... Just for 
just that, just random. That to me is pointless. To me, it is anyway. Although I might have done, I might have done a little bit on the album. <laughs> okay, well, that's interesting, isn't it? How you how how we can touch these things. If it's it's also what the intention is, right? Because if the intention you if you were coming at that same like a string of notes that could have come from one mind that same string of notes coming from another mind in another context has also a different meaning. So I think would... also with, with, with virtuoso technique as well, uh, to play to play lots and lots of notes very quickly, to me, if, I, if it's about expressing an exuberance or a joy or a running down a hill or whatever it might be, that that's it. but it's not about, look how many notes I can play. It's mm. just... It has to be uh, to the service of something that you're expressing. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself um, sometimes recognizing a movement towards simplicity, in part because also the the hands can't always even do what they could do? Some some ways they get better, some ways they start to have difficulty. Um, my uh, my hands took a a step back from doing anything for about three years. Um, I had an injury, so I had to rethink um, how I was going to play the piano. Um, and simplify, uh, not try to do too much. Um, so that was quite a long time ago, and I, I, it's really um, underpinned... Um, the sense of play something and just let as much light in, light and space into it as, as possible. Mm. Well, certainly, most of what I've done recently has been like that. There are some exceptional, more intense, complex, gnarly things as well. Yeah, yeah. But that's really, that's certainly a lovely commitment to allow space and light in because that makes you also more open to the ecology of mind, right? That somehow as as you're letting your mind... I mean, and in one sense, of course, jazz musicians are, are can, can be infamous listeners. I remember when uh, I went and heard Toni Morrison talk, and she saw Miles Davis in Paris, and she said the thing that blew me away was how intensely he listened to everybody. And... Um, that must be also part of that commitment, you know, to space and light. In fact, we were, we were doing a concert about three weeks ago, myself and when I say we, that's myself and uh, uh, Cormac O'Brien on the bass and Dominic Mullen playing the, the drums. And I, I seem to have, I've acquired this reputation for spaciousness and minimalism and, uh, in the middle of the gig, and I realised what I was—I was playing not very much, but because I really like to hear what they're doing. I want—I want to hear every nuance of what Dominic's doing with his brushes on the kit, and the different qualities of the sound that are coming out of the bass. So, I thought, hmm, that's that's interesting to discover. It's not an aesthetic choice; just you know, it's also. I really like hearing when I'm not playing. I like hearing what else is going on. Yeah, but it isn't also part of the paradox that we have in Western culture in general. Maybe other cultures have, have struggled with it in their own ways. But 
we seem to have a duality between the individual and the and the collective. We it's and so there's you have a strong commitment for, for some people on the individual. You know, like I think Jordan Peterson has become this kind of famous voice for this, and it's an admirable thing to defend the sanctity, the sacredness of each being. But but we aren't individuals, and so you know then you have people who have tried to defend the sanctity of the group, and both of those can clearly go wrong in in nightmarish ways. But there, as a musician, you're navigating the two that like I'm not making the music, we are. Right, and doesn't that yeah. go? <laughs> but there's also um, it, there's also space for intense individualism as well, and and expression that it, that's there as well. Right, that you, it's your turn to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. There's the non-duality, right? But each of us, we don't feel that we had to give it up, really. Mm. Yeah, it feels. I was going to say, I think, I think. Perhaps, well, this is to generalization, but I think most people are in search of the the uh, the collective. When I think of choirs that I've been in, and I used to, to lead a choir, just the joy on people's faces of just being this collective body. Um, you know, even sports teams, any any of those things, you know, I think there is a real longing for that. Right. And therein, right, is the, the why we see that we can't just take one side or the other, that somehow that's part of the mystery. That seems to be part of, the, again, the mystery of an enlightened being is that they are somehow fully the whole and fully themselves, where you really meet an individual. This was, you know, Socrates, who's speaking of archetype, you know, Plato essentially describes him as the first individual, that everybody else... You could look at the other archetypes and say, oh, such and such and such, he, he's like a, 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 an Achilles, or this person's like an Odysseus, or she's like a, a Helen, or whatever it is. But with Socrates, you couldn't do that, because he's just <laughs> Socrates. Socrates. Yeah, you've never met anybody yeah. like him. But he's yeah. so committed to the community that he will not accept exile. He accepts execution over exile, because he says, no, I belong to this community. Yes. So really powerful teaching. Yes, yes. And I think I was going to ask you, because I also feel like this non-duality of the individual and collective comes in the Diamond Sutra, and you quote the Diamond Sutra. I'll read the passage you're using, Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, translation. And you, you have it on the album, for those of you who don't don't have the album, and I encourage you, of course, obviously I wouldn't be talking about this if I didn't think you should listen to it, but um, it's just kind of there you know, next to your portrait, as, and so it stands out. And the, the particular lines are, all composed things are like a dream, a phantom, a drop of dew, a flash of lightning. That is how to meditate on them. That is how to observe them. But in that same, the reason I bring it up is because, well, it's interesting that in that chapter, that's the final chapter, and uh, Buddha says, you know, you could, you could, he describes like an impossible mountain of treasures that you could make as an offering you know, to enlightened beings, or, you know, if you're religious, you can imagine making an offering to God and just imagine filling up oceans of gems. And, and he said, that would be nothing to memorizing four lines. And then you've got four lines, so just memorizing four lines. But then also in that, and we can come back to that because it's so interesting what he says after that. But, but in there, at the beginning, Buddha says that because they're asking him in the Diamond Sutra, well, what do I do with my mind? You know, how do I use my mind? And Buddha says, well, one thing you have to do is be free of the idea of a self or uh, a life or a sentient being or a lifespan, these different views that we might have. 
so there too, he's, it's like to bring the Diamond Sutra into this album is to bring in the question of really who am I and how do I relate with these other beings in, in, as an ecology of mind. I don't know if you had any of that in mind when you put the quote, especially, but it's it's all there in how you're playing and talking about it. Well, that, that's really great that you you hear and see that. I, 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 to me, it was more that at the same time as, um, uh, well, in the sang that I'm in, we started reading together, um, <clears throat> Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. And the first chapter was looking at the Diamond Sutra. And, and so I was revisiting the Diamond Sutra and thinking about it again and just feeling like if, if I was to choose any any quote, it would be that. I wasn't really then thinking about myself and the band and the, the music, <laughs> but, but it's there, isn't it? It is there. Yeah, because that's what um, mind we need in a way, right? Somehow to yeah. touch that... I'm not playing with sentient beings, but I'm playing with patterns of impermanence, and I'm interwoven with them somehow. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. It's just, and also just the, well, it, it's always, before I, I was playing so much before ever anything got recorded. I mean, you'd do a wonderful gig, and you'd think, wow, God, wouldn't it be amazing to hear that back again? Or wouldn't it have been amazing if that had been recorded? But having to just always let it go. Just it was something of the moment for the people that made it and the people that heard it. Um, and whatever value it had, it had in that moment. So being able to let go of stuff <laughs> is written into the is written into the life. Yeah. Yeah. And you have of course a great example of impermanence, don't you? Because you've got a track about the Mayfly. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about um, lifespan, how we think about lifespan and relative lifespans of different beings and, uh, well, I mean, this this piece, it just takes off at a breakneck speed. It just goes woof, for like, like massive speed for about a minute. Um, so that, that to me was expressive of this kind of, really short intensity of life and when we see the mayfly <clears throat> hatching out on the river and mating and doing their thing and then dropping down again. Uh, and I suppose what I was thinking was, you know, if we we need to look at our own lives that way from the point of view of a being who lives for three or hundred years or four hundred years, like an old tree could look down a little pityingly on our, our puniness, you know. <laughs> So that was the that was the feeling of that piece. Yeah, it's really um, really interesting how we don't realize that our life looks that way from another uh, another being's perspective, right? I mean, we um, it seems like we've got uh, a bit of time. And but then, uh, on the other hand, it it's it really is like the blink of an eye in a lot of ways. Yeah, completely. And well, you know, music is so much about time and how you are in it or with it or what it might what it is. Um, so yeah, it, it it took a little bit of thought there. The mayfly. The mayfly, and I like how in in that uh, in that song, you know, there's a. There's, it seems like the silence at the end of the track is so much more pronounced because, of course, it's a shorter track, 
Um, but then, you know, it's about this mayfly who's just kind of now gone. <laughs> Plopped. <laughs> yeah. Crashed into the water. Yeah. 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 Let me see. Maybe I can play a second of the mayfly. Hang on. <laughs> He's come to yeah. life, yeah. <laughs> or she. Yeah, that's wonderful. So that's that, that kind of playing at that sort of speed for me is is I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what notes I was playing at all. Mm-hmm. It's completely just it's just about um, going and trusting I'm going to land on something and staying, just staying. Yeah. Yeah, there's that night vision again, right? It, 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 <laughs> yeah. And it happens even in places. I remember what, uh, reading an article about um, a, a chess grandmaster, and she was coaching a student, and she said, you, once, you, once you get to a position like this, you have to just let your hands play. So there's a, the same yeah. idea that your, your conscious mind can't process it anymore. Absolutely. It's, it's beyond, it's beyond uh, any sort of intellectual underpinning beyond i suppose just what i was saying earlier about the the discipline that sits underneath that means you can do something like that right yeah that's that's part of it it's not about i know where i know how i'm making my maneuvers through harmony uh at all it's it's just go yeah and that's one view is that we're uh, part of what our habitual consciousness does is it allows the deeper mind to learn because the, we can we use that to direct attention in a way. But there's this idea that the thing that we habitually refer to as I, that ordinary, that the sun from the Sufi story is the habitual I, it's not the divine. And um, what... Uh, say Gregory Bateson's work was about is that the ecologies don't function on the basis of that I. They function on the basis of what you're doing when you play jazz, when you're improvising with a group. That's what ecologies do. It's the jazz of life. If, um, you know, if, I'm, if you're running down a hill, if you stop to ask, how do I do this running down the hill? Like, you don't. You just run down the hill. <laughs> Your body knows how to do it and gravity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zhuangzi has got this too. Um, because I was thinking I was wrong, so because of the the idea of the pe- people, you know, like the mayfly, because he's got this uh, scene at the very beginning where there's this huge, huge uh, bird, um, and this bird can rise up and f- flies like ninety thousand miles, and uh, I mean he's he he rises ninety thousand miles, and then he can you know. Um, 
sail off on a six-month wind, you know, a wind that just blows. You just It's amazing. And there are a few lessons that he gives us in there. One of them is that it's weird, the juxtaposition. So he describes this big bird. It's more massive than anything we can imagine, so it's clearly fantastic in a way. Then he says, well, you know, if you've got water uh, piled up, uh, if it's not deep enough, it won't hold a big boat. So he says, if you take a, a like a cup of water and you've got a little hollow in your floor, you could dump a cup of water in it and then you could sail a, a few like scraps of paper. You could just sprinkle like a little scrap of paper, you know, put some leaves on it. But you can't put a big boat in that. In order to put a boat, you have to have a big, big thing of water. And it's like saying that something has to be built up for you to have the the wings that this bird has, you know, because the other birds, he says, well, the quail looks at this giant bird and says, that's ridiculous. Where does he think he's going? You know, the only thing you can do is fly for like about 10 feet, right? And then you have to land again. And that's what the quail thinks. And so he also uses the analogy of long-lived beings. And he says, you know, there's a being, such and such being that counts 500 years as one uh, spring and 500 years as one autumn. And so like imagine what that's view. And so what he says is that a small lifespan cannot understand a large one and a small mind can't understand a big mind. Mm. So somehow you're trying to practice the big mind, I think, right? That's the idea, to practice that big mind. I hope so. Well, with um, with gratitude to, to you actually on the way, I shall mention this now, Nikos, and the, the work we did together I was I was reading through some old notes and just thinking how in the beginning everything seemed I was struggling to grasp some things some of some of the things you were teaching uh, and I I I was thinking about it then this evening before we met up and thinking so much more of that just feels I won't use the word commonplace because none of it's commonplace but just more part of me in a way that I don't necessarily articulate to myself. So as it emerges in something like this work, you're seeing it and I'm going, oh, well, yes, I expect you're right. You know, it's become more organic an expression, oh. which is brilliant. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's so nice. I'm very grateful for, for what we did together. Yeah. Well, I think it, I, part of my work is to let more artists know, more creatives know how much the wisdom traditions can nourish their, their actual output. You know, it's not like some abstraction that you sit around and think about things, but it's, it's shaping what actually happens with the instrument, with your collaborators and so on. It really changes you. Performances feel very different now as well. Um, in, uh, I, I think I'm integrating more the um, the, the Buddhism or the meditation into not just the moment of playing, but in, in the arriving into a situation where there are people and an audience and there's a performance and there's me getting up on stage and there's all sorts of possible neurosis attached to that. So, you know, it's like, will I be good enough? Will they like me? Will I be in good form? Will I feel tired halfway through? Da, 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 da. All of those kind of things. Uh, or an overexcitement, adrenaline rush. So just to be able to uh, be able to say to myself, I, I may the goodness of this performance be for the benefit of all beings who hear it and all sentient beings 
you know, just to have that kind of structure, not a structure, but practice, that kind of practice um, integrated now more <clears throat> steadily into performance. And um, so that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. Of course. Yeah. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's nice the way it actually, again, the, it shapes the, the quality of the art. You know, that's what matters. It's not, it's like some mm -hmm. side thing, but somehow or other it changes what's coming out. And that people can hear it, they can sense it. It's there. When did you know that you were a musician? Um, <clears throat> I was playing music from seven. The decision to calling myself a musician, uh, well, I, I don't really know when to, to locate. I, I can remember there was a time when I decided I wasn't going to have uh, an ordinary life. I was going to have a musician's life and that that was my aspirations were to be uh, warm in winter and have enough money to eat. You know, like that I was going to take, if it could take care of my basic requirements, I was not going to be uh, concerned about money too much. Um, and that I considered, this is me at 22, I guess, and I was looking at people who had jobs and careers and were going off to Thailand for three weeks in the summer or, you know, needed to spend a lot of money to compensate for how hard they worked. And uh, thinking, well, okay, this, this absent money, this non-money that I'm not earning um, is my time. I'm spending it on my time, on my freedom. So my free time... What do I want to do in my free time? I wanted to practice and self-educate as much as possible. So uh, I think that was money well spent. I think that was cool. But I, and I also made an agreement to myself that I would I would do anything that was asked of me in terms of I played um, I played music for children's dance classes, which is where I had freedom to improvise massively. Um, I play for old people in old people's homes with Alzheimer's doing old time musical songs for, you know, for memory and just anything, anything that would be of value in the community at that time. Um, so that was my early twenties. Hmm. It went from there. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of cognitive reframing. Actually, I'm getting paid a lot, but I, 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 I pay, I have to pay for my free time, so there my take-home pay is actually low. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My freedom! <laughs> yes, what's the cost? I don't care what the price of freedom is, just give me the freedom. So, yeah, you could say I'm actually, I, I make millions, but I pay a lot for the free time. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly that. And, you know, I've never, I've never had to really struggle too much like little short times but money's never been a focus but i've managed to do okay teaching's become it was has always been a part of that and, and for most jazz musicians i know um unless you're right at the upper echelon of uh, recording artist um teaching is part and parcel of it and, and i think that's great as well you know that there's there is that commitment to passing things on yeah, that's participating in the tradition, isn't it? 
Yeah. And and there's a profound responsibility there, as Kodai uh, recognized, you know, the great music theoretician and teacher and pioneer. You know, he said, we really, we want the finest musicians to be working with our children because it's, they're too impressionable. So if they get somebody who isn't really uh, insightful and so on and, and really at the, um, you know, doing good work, then children are going to unfortunately take on bad habits. They're going to be limited by not being exposed to people who really know what this is all about. Yeah. And I, I, I've been teaching quite a lot of the students who come to me while they're doing their degree course in jazz, um, like which is university interesting. university students. Yes, university students. So um, this last year, four, four students who, um, I suppose, I think that what I'm contributing there is absolutely insisting on the joy of it all because it becomes quite overwhelming there's so much information going into a person's mind. It almost can't process it. There's so much going on. So um, creativity, exploration, and the joy of doing it are the three things that I would focus on. Yeah. And there you see that, again, the, on the five factors for a musician in particular would be openness to experience. Yeah. That's what you're touching on in your principles. So the openness to experience plus the conscientiousness. And then what's lovely is you're saying what Buddha said, which was, remember, for for everybody else, you know the story, but when he decided that he was done torturing himself, uh, because that's that's our, our archetypal life, is that we, we try through pleasure, then we try through self-torture to get satisfied, to find uh, a, a happiness and to to arrive at insight. And when he gave up the torture part, finally, he said, well, I don't know what to do. And it was really important, as I always say, that it's a young girl, a little girl, who gives him a bowl of rice and milk, and, and he realizes he has to, he can't just starve himself. So he takes this nourishment, and then he goes into the river and into the forest. He goes, so he goes into the waters, that's important, and he goes into the wild place, the forest, and he sits under that tree. And he says, well, I'm, I, I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. And now he's just sworn he's not going to torture himself anymore, so he must really know he's on the cusp of it. And then what does he say to himself? He says, well, uh, I wonder if joy, the path of joy, will lead me to where I want to go. And so that's his decision, is he's going to sit there and he's going to find true joy in himself. And that's what leads to his enlightenment, which a lot of people might not know because we might think of Buddhism as being kind of severe or, you know, Buddha was, was an ascetic for a while. And, of course, even the rules after that were kind of, they required a lot of discipline. But he still was saying, I am I'm teaching the path of joy. That's what makes you enlightened. Yes. And, I, I, that's the path I want to be on. I'm on the path of joy. I am... I, um, I do feel, I mean, I'm 66 now and I would look at the different decades of my life and I've never felt lighter, freer, happier than I do now. It's, it's, it's a lovely feeling to have. Um, and perhaps just the consistency of meditation has a huge part to pay and, um, less attached to outcomes when I <clears throat> make something. People will like it or they don't. It will travel or it won't. It, it will arrive in people's lives or not. You know, and I, I just really do feel able to 
to let it go, not in a sort of, oh, I'm just on to the next thing, but just in a, a, a reality of, <sighs> a reality of what? A reality of, that isn't out of my control. And I have no, I, I, I have this PR a publicist at the moment and he rings me and he's very anxious and he says, Carol, we've got a good, we got a good review here, but I'm not getting enough airplay. And he's kind of apologizing to me. Um, but I can't seem to get traction in the US so much. And I'm just, all oh, right, it's grand. I don't mind. That's fine. It's all fine. Yeah. Poor Dominic. He's trying to please me, you know, and get me results. Yeah. Well, it is amazing, isn't it? That there's there's such an ocean, right, of, of uh, stuff for people's attention. And it oh, isn't he... easy, is it? Well, um it's not easy if that's what your aim is. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, it, it, it brings me a huge uh, sense of happiness if someone says I have it permanently on my car CD player, which is the only place I have a CD player these days, you know. I think, wow, here's someone who actually wants it in their life. Actually, you know, I mean, how many albums, new music, have I listened to in, the, say, in the last three years that has I've played more than once it's not a lot i listen to a lot of old music you know might be keith jarrett or bill evans or you know i like and more contemporary jazz pianists as well um i have to tell you what i have been listening to a lot yeah. oh. listening to laurie anderson with tenzin chagyal and jesse paris smith it's an album called songs from the bardo <clears throat> where Laurie Anderson is working with two musicians um, and she's reciting extracts from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it's the most amazing, amazing piece of work, musically mm. stunning, but also just a trip. Yeah, I bet. Well, of course, the the name in Tibetan wouldn't be, uh, you couldn't go back from English to Tibetan to get the name right because they, of course, don't call it the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But as, no. as you might know, it's called the Book of uh, Liberation upon Hearing. Yes, in exactly. In between. So the sonic yes. dimension there is particularly delightful, isn't it? Hearing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the hearing of it in the, in the everyday, in the now life, is, is just a stunning experience. Yeah. It's so interesting, too, because there's a way in which the jazz state of being is a kind of bardo, because meditation is a bardo, and if we are letting go of the <laughs> habitual mind, the jazz mind maybe is a kind of also bardo. It's a, it's a between, yes. yeah. Between. And there's some wonderful text, uh, and she says it in her inimitable Laurie Anderson storytelling kind of way. Now you are seeing brilliant lights, do not be distracted. Recognize them as your own self-display. Ah. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. Isn't that wonderful? It's fabulous. And I love I love the recognition of one's self-projection and self-display. But the word display, it's also it's beautiful, like a peacock displays, and we can see the display of a lightning storm or whatever it might be, you know. It's not Oh, I've got a horrible ego. It's just self-display. It's beautiful. Yeah, because and that's what's amazing is that we that we could hear those words in this between, 
And they would still be true because people are not hearing our voices as if they're hearing something outside themselves, their own mind. It is the display. These sounds that come from supposedly my mouth are in the listener right now. This is the display of your mind, dear listener. Yes. And Carol's album is the display of your own mind. <laughs> doesn't exist without your ears. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, it's a kind of mind-blowing yeah. thing when we think about that because the lights... When you're, she's talking about the display of lights, it's really amazing that it is mind that 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 displays light. That we are, we look and we look at the sun and it's so bright, but that's only our mind. It's not photons. They don't photons don't get in your skull and <laughs> light up. But I only know. mind does that. Our mind actually makes that light and that and the sound that you, that you hear. So yes, I I, I recommend it to anyone. Who is listening to this? Songs from the Bardo. Songs and, from the Bardo. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Now, and when, the other I've been listening to. Sorry, I did, just this one more, which is such a beautiful thing. Um, it's called Promises by an artist called Floating Points, and Farrah Sanders, the saxophone player. He's in his eighties now, and he was asked to do this uh, music with him, and. and he, he is so, you wouldn't say restrained, but he's not trying to prove anything. And it's just beautiful saxophone playing and some ambient electronic and the London Symphony Orchestra. And somehow this all combines into the most astonishing, beautiful uh, piece of music called Promises. Promises. Okay. Well, maybe, yeah. so here everyone's getting these recommendations and maybe we can talk about links afterwards. We can see if there's a SoundCloud or... YouTube or whatever. That's yeah. wonderful. Did you start with piano when you were seven? So it's coming up on six decades of you playing music then. Yeah, I, I started on piano and went through grades. Um, I had a really wonderful um, teacher when I was at school uh, who got me uh, t through the um, an ARCM performance diploma which is uh, the associate of the Royal College of Music, um, before I left school. Uh, so, but my heart wasn't in the classical music at all. I was, I loved pop music. I wanted to work out songs. I wanted to compose little things. Um, then I went to college and I didn't really do music at all. I just did, I did um, politics you studied politics. Politics and philosophy. And philosophy. Well, some philosophy. I, I was going to do medicine, and then I just had a complete freak out. Like, I, I got into university to do medicine and then thought, I, I don't have sufficient vocation for this. So the university wrote back to me saying, what would you like to do? And I thought, well, what is the most opposite of medicine? Philosophy. <laughs> So I, they sent me um, a reading list, and I started reading the first book, and I thought, I, I can't do this. What did they have you read? This is unsurprising. A.J. Ayers. Is oh, it A.J. Ayers? Yeah, goodness gracious. The English. No. What do no. I mean by I mean? And no. Oh, heavens. So, <laughs> no. Put me off. 
<laughs> so for so, those uh, of you at home, P.S., this is, uh, this is the difference between philosophy and professors of philosophy, philosophers and professors of philosophers, because philosophers are only the opposite of medicine in that they heal the soul rather than focusing on healing the body, but philosophy is actually therapy. So Buddha was considered a great physician. Socrates was a kind of physician of the soul, a midwife of the soul. Okay, but so unsurprisingly, you found that to be not interesting. It was only my, only my youthful ignorance that thought it was the complete opposite, from a um, pragmatic, practical purpose to a just expand my mind, please. Um, so they then wrote to me saying, well, we suggest you do anthropology, which was perfect. Uh, and I did a year and a bit of anthropology because that was a bit of everything. Um, linguistics, culture, religion, all sorts of things. But I, I became a little, um, well, how can I put it? I went into my second year of anthropology and I found myself looking or studying these um, disappearing cultures impinged on from outside so what was this outside i really that's why i moved to politics i felt i needed to understand global economic forces economic imperialism i became a marxist and fiercely anti-capitalist which you know obviously i still am even if i'm embedded in this world mm. um, but uh, so that, yeah, that's what I ended up doing. And then I moved back to London and very, very quickly, uh, I had no idea about jobs. I didn't know about the world of work and jobs and what one might do. Uh, I was very, in a, very naive. But I, I got a job um, in a theatre company as a musician and then just got into a band, started writing songs, living in squats in South London. That was my life. Alternative life, you know, like the 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 kind of feminist punky raster world of Brixton in the nineteen late seventies, nineteen late nineteen seventies. Wow, that's funny because I I don't know what year. I guess it would have been a few years before that that Leonard Cohen was uh, went from Montreal to London on a uh, um, a grant government grant to write poetry because he was a poet. And then he got to London and said, this is miserable, because I lived in both London and Montreal, and the winter in London is far worse um, because the damp. And then, you know, Montreal, yeah. the temperature might be way lower, but you, it's not the same. And the city is so, I mean, it just feels so different. And uh, so anyway, so then he went to Greece, and uh, <laughs> that's that's what started him. Yeah. And then what was funny about him is that he also said, I'm not good. He never worked uh, like a kind of non-creative job and but he decided that he couldn't make a living as a poet so then he set, thought he would become a a singer <laughs> <laughs> singer <laughs> what a brilliant <laughs> yes what a, what a brilliant idea can't make it as a poet so you know what i'll do um and he did it and he managed it so and just like you he didn't really have to worry about money for most of his life even though he never became as famous as bob dylan or anything but you know, he found a way to make it. Yeah, just to get on and do what you want to do. Yeah, that's marvelous. Yeah. yeah, so then, so basically you were really classically trained from age seven all the way up to, well, like, what 18. age? 18. 18, yeah. Wow. And then what were you doing musically 
were you just still like fooling around and with it were like because I imagine you went off to university and then what were you doing did you still try to stay in touch with playing or very little um um the I don't know I just kind of got swept away in my student life and my gang of friends and the things we did together got up to really and it was only after I I finished university that I I went back I was living in Brixton I was unemployed and somebody owed me money so they gave me a clarinet instead so that's when I first listened to Kind of Blue on constant rotation playing along with the clarinet and thinking wow this is this is somewhere to be and I was thinking about it recently Nikos because you know then I might have had about three or four records that I knew, I knew intimately, and how different it is now. Um, like young people that I, I teach or engage with, <clears throat> just got everything. You know, we mentioned that earlier, whether it's YouTube or Spotify, and they end up knowing much more than I do about everything that's going on because they're just there all the time. Um, you know, they'll say to me, an eighteen-year-old will say, "Have you heard this person? Have you heard this pianist? And have you heard this one?" And I, I can't take it all in. I'm very kind of, uh, I get into something for a long time, a sort of deep groove rather than spread it out wide. Right. But there's something to be said for that depth, isn't there? Because, you know, it's just, well, just like um, uh, what Buddha was saying in the Diamond Sutras, if you just if you could just memorize four lines, how many people have memorized any philosophical text? I used to have my students memorize passages of philosophy because you don't realize how you you can actually turn to them. They become they are medicine, but we yes. don't have the exposure. And so you are saying you were really living with this album by a genius. So like of all things, right? You know. <laughs> Yes. Um, you, you know, you're you were really, really getting a deep, um, a, a deep exchange with, a deep communion with it. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking that about that, like, what do I actually have in my head as good medicine? Um, when I read um, Brian Keenan's book, An Evil Cradling, I don't know if you, uh, if his name is familiar to you. He's from Belfast, and he was held captive um, by the Hezbollah for about five years. I think it was five years in a cage-like conditions. And in his book, he describes he heard orchestras and he heard all kinds of things. But like it was like, what did he have there? I mean, he went crazy, but he came out the other side. But uh, it set me off on like, what what do I have? What poetry do I have? What what music can I actually play in my head what's there of in the, I mean it was a fantasy game to play with myself but it did it did push me into learning some poetry off by heart at the time mm. that's really powerful because I think from the spiritual approach to the arts that's that's finally what I think the spiritual approach would be in a way is is to say even take all that stuff, all the music and poetry, you think, you know, what do you really have that you can draw from? Like, because even that, you know, is not real in a way, right? So how do you get down to the mind that produces all music? 
mm. and and know it intimately and find that oh wow okay this is the thing this is all I've got at the, at yes. the end there's nothing it, but this it might just be one one of Bach's two part inventions that I've played all my life since mm. I was a child mm. that my my fingers know it before my uh, inner ear does yeah. But even below that, right, it's the mind before, you know, that's what I mean. I, I appreciate what you're saying, but that's the idea. I think of the, if you, you were talking about going deeper, which was, of course, part of our early, when we were, you know, uh, that was one of the things that came up as you were saying, well, I've had this practice for a long time, but I, I feel that now we're, we're going deeper. And it was interesting then to see that in, in the, that you were, you were care, that was part of the, uh, a current in the soul that carried you into this, this album was, okay, going deeper. And what happens when you keep going deeper? <laughs> I mean, that's really what Buddha is saying. Keep going and keep going and tell me what happens. Yes. What do you, what do you find even under the Bach? What's, what's there before the piano, right? I mean, it's the face, uh, as uh, Hui Nang said, right? What is the face you had before your parents were born? What's mm. the face you had before the piano was there? And that's what's playing the music. <laughs> yeah. So yes. then you, you, um, okay, so then you, you started to play the clarinet. So is that what you did to, uh, you said, okay, I'm going to do this now? I mean, so you were there, you were unemployed. If somebody gives you a clarinet instead of money, which you could, you needed because you were unemployed. Um, I was playing keyboards in, in bands for the next couple of years, um, doing things like covers, you know, things like Steely Dan and Soul and R&B, stuff like that. Um, all good, good material. Um, then I went to live in Spain for a while uh, and I thought I'd need, I couldn't carry a piano, so I, I bought a saxophone and took my saxophone with me. Um, and uh, I went with my my buddy, my partner at the time, and she she bought a trombone. So we just said we went off to Spain armed with our instruments. Um, so I spent about a month in Andalusia and to begin with before going to Barcelona. But that was the, that was the experience of practicing long notes, looking out over mountains, over toward landscape, to horizon. So this was like a breath training to hold it to the horizon, to the landscape all the time. Um, That's a beautiful image, a musician who's offering this note out to the horizon. Yeah, it's a way of just, you just steady everything and keep giving it in this slow, controlled... Yeah, but it's... Uh, it's it's got that bodhisattva spirit too, though. It's because it's not just yeah. you're breathing, you're set, you're giving the music to the horizon, right? You're giving it to the world. Yeah, and it the, the saxophone became something that helped me out of shyness as a performer. And I was really shy. I used to think being a musician was a curse if it meant you had to then get on stage in front of people just because you had a talent, you know. But the saxophone, it, I, I stepped into a different sense of myself. If you've got a horn, you have to, you have to blow it. 
<laughs> but because it also had this kind of really in, rich interior spiritual aspect to it because you're in that breath um i i don't know i had that sort of balance i think between this kind of rich experience i mean i would just see these lights that i was in i'd be in light when i was playing it but at the same time i could i could push it and enjoy it and strut it more and you know that was fun that was fun i became more extrovert through doing mm. that that's really nice yeah, I was just I was thinking about how in in you know the Zen has influenced so many of the arts in Japan and the shakuhachi, which is the the Japanese flute. The idea is to have enlightenment on one breath. Yeah. One breath would be you could wake up. That wasn't that was a cassette that got well worn on my uh, Sony Walkman, the shakuhachi flute of on a, a, a what was it? A crow leaving an empty nest. Or heron leaving an emptiness. I can't remember which one. Crane, a crane, of course. Crane leaving an emptiness. Um, yeah, that that influenced me quite a lot. I think. Wow, were you playing professionally then in Spain? Um, no, I was able to do a few classes to teach a little bit, um, and I I was in Barcelona, and I I was connecting there with, with really good people, uh, creative people, politically active people that were just, you know, the kind of world that I, I knew. But I didn't have the language. And although everybody was very kind to me, I felt like it would take me years to feel I could really be a person that could contribute to what was going on. And also what was going on was Catalan independence and a whole culture around Catalan culture. So me coming in with Anglo-American jazz and blues, as it was for me then at that stage, I'd say, you know, it's kind of changed a lot since then, but um, was enjoyed to some extent, but I didn't think it would have a real place in the, in the world there in Barcelona at the time. So I came back to London where there was a, a, a wonderful growth of um, an explosion, really, of women in jazz forming groups and supporting each other and playing and yeah so i became part of that world hmm. no. yeah that's wonderful and yeah. so when you when you were a little girl at seven did you ever entertain or like maybe not at seven eight nine ten did you ever entertain the idea that okay maybe i might i could be a musician or did it just not really appear until this whole struggle with college and? Um, no, it didn't really appear because I thought that being a musician, even as I was going through my teens, that being a musician, well, I was listening to pop music and rock music and folk music, but there wasn't like a career path for doing that. And there was every expectation that I would be going to a university Um and at the time, it seemed that would just, if it was music, it would be classical music. Um, and now there's a lot more options of, you know, electronic music and jazz and uh, all kinds of music, mm. um, <clears throat> music production. So all my, no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely self-taught. I've had you know, one or two lessons along the way with good people that, um, no college education in music. Mm -hmm. 
I might know about Russian history of the revolution, but <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So uh, with this album, I know it's hard to uh, to uh, a mother loves all her children. Do do you have a favorite track on this album? Um. Well, I think I think my favorite track changes, but I think at the moment it's Into Your Life, which we already heard a little bit of, followed mm -hmm. by Fly. I just love those two together. Mm. Uh, I I also really like Dreaming of a Snake, and I, I, I it, it's a long piece, um, but it makes me smile because there was this story I think I told you uh, once before about the story, and it, and it was a, a real kind of conquering some really deeply entrenched atavistic ridiculous phobia about mm -hmm. snakes until I encountered one in a dream that was so beautiful, so beautiful and so unthreatening. She was keeping her distance from me. And then as she dived down, this is all in a dream, as she dived down into the earth, I followed because I wanted her to see her beauty, you know. So the piece kind of follows this snake and then does these depth dives every so often. Um, and... The title to me was, is the snake dreaming of me or am I dreaming of the snake? So mm -hmm. that's why I really like it. And when we played it, we couldn't get out of it. It's got a sort of a loop structure. We played for about 10 minutes because we just didn't want to stop. And I had to actually make a choice and kind of cut it down a little bit. But mm. um, yeah, Like the Ouroboros, you know, the, that's the loop structure, right? The snake swallowing its own tail, that image. Exactly. It's an going to end <laughs> yeah that's really that's amazing it's also interesting because we we had a really weird um we the time when you told me about that dream uh i had at the you were you told me about it because it was on your mind and it was a weird a uh, couple of synchronicities that we had that i had had a dream right before we were going to have that conversation that um that we were starting uh 17 minutes late and i asked you if um <laughs> you know do you still want to you know we can we can work the rest of the time it's, it's it's so we're starting a little bit late it's no big deal and you said sure that's fine and i uh that day, whenever I, we were going to have the call, you, I sent you the text saying, are you ready? And you wrote me back sometime later saying, oh, I got, only got that text 17 minutes after you sent it. And they said, I'm here now. And it was this weird moment where, it, you know, it's, it's, the dream was coming true and the 17 yeah. was, it was yeah. so specific. And then in that conversation, you told me about the snake and I didn't get a chance to tell you then, but I emailed you later. But I, but, but when you, you had been thinking about that dream and at the same time you were thinking about it, that week I was really, I had been so wanting to see snakes where I lived at that time because they were supposedly there, but I was never seeing them. And so then finally, this California king snake, I was coming down the trail and there was this beautiful California and a pretty big one too. They're not always very big, but it was a pretty big California king snake. And I was really stopped by it. 
And then there it was a few days later that we had this conversation. And I wasn't sure because I didn't write down the exact time that I had been having yeah. this and whether it matched with the time you were thinking about that dream. But it was really funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was a real, you know, we were talking earlier about um, fearlessness and um, fear. Uh, and I, and I, I can't say that if I was to encounter a California king snake on the path in front of me, whether I'd be fearless. I'm sure I'd be very, very careful. <laughs> yeah. But the rising panic that I, yeah, you know, the sort of almost gorge rising fear that I uh, had felt as a sort of phobic thing, I don't think is there anymore. Um, yeah. It's so lovely, though, that that archetype came to you in a dream and that you decided you in your dream you focused it. Because isn't that true, too, that this dream is night vision? Because we don't realize we... I always find it amazing how when uh, we dream, everything we're looking at, there, too, we know is produced by the mind. But isn't it amazing that we have vision when our eyes are closed? And when your eyes were closed, you could face the fear Mm. of of the snake you had to meet her with the night vision eyes in order to and then follow her into the dark hole i was traumatized as a child even to go to sleep because that's where i would encounter them so it was (laughs) (laughs) well that's an interesting twist right so then it went from being a nightmare to being something else yeah 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 I, it was it was just recognizing the the presence the the beauty and presence and the life and the intelligence that I was seeing you know whereas uh-huh. before it was snakes were just ah right yeah. yeah and it's also important because as I often say we there's something in us that's really actually pretty afraid of reality but that's not easy for the, the that conscious ego to admit the part you know that is the daytime eyes the habitual eyes it doesn't mm-hmm. want to admit actually how scared it is of the nighttime vision and that's why we often cling to these you know these kind of I would say fragmented views because we're so afraid of the wholeness well there's a lot to kind of be afraid of these days, isn't there? In a way, um, yeah, sure. Kind of, uh, well, I don't want to be too sort of future future thinking, but, you know, the um, system collapse, I guess, is on its way and it's not going to be comfortable for many and it's going to be disastrous for many. But, um, you know, that's a whole other conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe that's the next album, System Collapse. <laughs> System Collapse. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been uh, this has been wonderful. I, I'll just uh, leave you with one last question. Is there anything you want to say to people approaching uh, this album or any final thoughts you want to share? Anything? It's, here it is. It's just open rather than my having a profound final question. Just uh, here's the spaciousness for you. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I would like to just say, dear listener, if you're listening to this, I, I've had such a good time in conversation with Nikos and we've just been so relaxed and chatty. And I hope, I hope that, you know, the conversation we've had is um, uh, helpful, informative and fun. That's all I want to say. That's it. Well, yes, I've, ha- I've certainly had fun. It's really wonderful to, to talk with you and I look forward to it. Oh, and that we should mention we did a collaborative piece together. Yes. Okay, so we'll release that uh, with with this uh, this dialogue, which is. Um, do we still want? To, do we still like the name? People, I guess people can write in and say if they disagree. Right now, it's called the Shape of Prayer. I love the name. Okay, and Did then you film the Shape of Water. That was a lovely film. Oh no, I, I didn't see it. Okay, Shape, Shape of Prayer. I've heard of it. Okay, ours is called the Shape of Prayer, and then we have two different versions. We still didn't. I'll just put links to both. They, um, they're different only, well, yeah, there's a little bit of difference visually at the end of one of them. Um, and then they're different sonically because you had two different approaches to playing with the images, huh? Entering that night vision <laughs> with the shape of prayer. So, and do you, did you, did you liked it? Would you like to do another collaboration one day, maybe? I thought it was wonderful. I, I love to do something like that. Just, yes, yeah, send it to me. Okay. Whatever you're doing. Uh, I'd love to. All right, Um, good. Yeah. So it's it'll be the world premiere, everyone. Once we release it, it's uh, and they're both short. There's they're I think they're both six minutes. I think is what the what they are. So, um, just video. I I did the video, and Carol collaborated by doing the entering that jazz state of mind and playing, improvising. And uh, we even got yelled at by Sony Music because 10 seconds of the improvisation, <laughs> according to the computer, sounded like an album that Sony owns. But then I explained I explained to them, and they were kind enough, actually, they released us. Oh, that's so, so bizarre, isn't it? I mean, all it was was me doing single notes like a bell. Ding, yeah. pause, yeah. ding, pause, right. ding. So that, that is copyright, <laughs> folks. <laughs> But it, they did admit that it wasn't, so that's that's fine. But it's like what happens when a computer is analyzing something, and then yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, well, that Great. was a, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this, Nikos. Absolutely, I'd and love thanks. To see you. Yeah, thanks to all of you, my friends at home. If you have uh, questions for reflections, stories to share about night vision, entering the magic of the jazz of your life, uh, dream vision, anything related to what Carol and I discussed today, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future dialogue or contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.